Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you that you're with us. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Northwest Kids, I want you to look at me real quick for a moment. I hope that you see that when you watch your parents taking communion, like you did a couple minutes ago, I hope that what you see is that even though your parents are bigger than you, even though they have jobs, even though they drive cars, I hope that you see that the only strength, the only hope that your parents are relying on is not any of that stuff, but it's the presence of Jesus that's in their life. And with that thought in mind, Northwest Kids, please make your way to your classes. Well, as many of you know, before I took a job as a pastor here at Northwest, um, before I took a job as a pastor here at Northwest, Lindsay and I lived in China as missionaries for over 13 years. And while we were living in China, we loved China. We spoke Chinese. We ate Chinese food. But we still paid American taxes. No surprise. <laughs> we still voted in American elections. And we still, when we got on an international flight, we still carried a United States passport. See, we were living in China, and we loved China. We loved Chinese people, but we were citizens of a different country. We were citizens of the United States of America. And so even though we lived in China, we still lived according to practices and values of our, true, of our citizenship as citizens of the United States of America. Now, if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, the Bible tells you that this world is not your home. The Bible tells you that while we live in the world and while we love the world, we are not citizens of this world. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And in the same way, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you and I, we are called to live in this world not according to the values and the habits and the rules of this world, but instead according to the values and the habits and the rules of our true home, the country of our true citizenship, the kingdom of God. And there's probably no clearer place that the values of the world and the values of the kingdom of God come into tension than as we think about how we view our money and our possessions. So the past few, for these five weeks, we're taking a, a five-week break from our series in Genesis, and we're looking at five texts in the New Testament that teach us how we can view the money and possessions that God gives us according to the lens and the perspective, not of the world, but of the kingdom of God. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into our text this morning. 
Heavenly Father, we love you. I thank you for your word. God, this is, um, this is, a, this is not an easy text this morning that, that we're looking at. And so God, just pray for soft hearts. Uh, I pray that you would help us to understand your word, help us to believe it, uh, help us to obey it, and help us to be able to teach it to others as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a, I don't know how much you guys pay attention to, uh, to Netflix and streaming services and stuff like that, but there is a, in the, the past several years, there's been a whole new subgenre of TV and movies that has been getting more and more popular over the past uh, five or 10 years. And I was reading an article th- this past week that labeled this subgenre, get ready for this, they labeled this subgenre, Eat the Rich. It's a subgenre, and there's, and there's talking about all these movies and TV shows that, that, that they put under this genre of Eat the Rich TV shows or Eat the Rich movies. The hashtag uh, eat the rich on TikTok to date has been viewed over 850 million times. Now, if you watch these movies or kind of look at those TikTok posts, the, the general idea usually presents the rich people in a very critical light. You know, they're, they're evil, you know, they're corrupt, they live these lavish, wasteful, extravagant lifestyles. And the message of the kind of the eat eat the rich phrase is pretty clear. It's the idea that rich people are evil. And the only way you get rich is by oppressing people, by taking advantage of people, by being corrupt. And therefore, rich people are the problem in the world. If it wasn't for all those millionaires and billionaires, normal people like you and me wouldn't have so much trouble in our life, right? How should we view the rich? Last week, uh, our missionary in Ukraine, Dima Kotick, preached on the topic, how should we view the poor from a perspective of a citizen of the kingdom of God? And today, you can turn me in your Bibles to Matthew 19, and we're going to be looking at the topic of how should we view the rich. And if you're a note taker, um, I'm going to make this really easy. I have one point today. You can write this down, and everything else is going to be about this. There's one point, which is that Jesus in Matthew 19, and we're going to start in verse 16, Jesus is teaching us that being rich, being rich is not a sign that you're evil and not a sign that you're good. Rather, being rich is an obstacle to entering the kingdom of God. Okay, so Matthew 19, verse 16, I'm going to start there. Um, This is a conversation Jesus is having with a man. And we know from this text that he is a a rich man. And later on uh, in this passage, uh, it tells us that this man is a young man. In Luke's account of this same interaction that Jesus has, he says that this is a rich young ruler. So this is a this is a man probably about, you know, late teens, early 20s. He has everything. He has money, he has status, and he's young enough that he has his whole life ahead of him to enjoy it. And look at this interaction between Jesus and this rich young man. In verse 16 it says, "And behold, a man came to him 
saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Okay, so he's asking, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, there is a theme that the author returns to over and over and over again, which is, how can we enter the kingdom of God? Sometimes he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes he calls it the kingdom of God. Sometimes he just refers to it as having eternal life. But it's this theme throughout Matthew, what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? What does the kingdom of God look like? And who is going to be allowed to enter the kingdom? Who are the true citizens of the kingdom of God? And let's give this rich young man some credit. He's asking at least half of his question is the right question. How can I know that I'm going to have eternal life? How can I know that I will be allowed to enter the kingdom of God? When Lindsay and I lived in China, uh, we, we would come back to America uh, on occasion, and when we did, we'd get on a long flight, <laughs> a long flight, and then we would touch down uh, in Atlanta or Los Angeles or, or wherever, and then we would have to go through customs. And when you go through customs, if you've ever traveled internationally, you take out your passport or you take out your documents and they run a little background check or whatever it is that they do behind that, that computer screen there. Uh, and then they either welcome you in to the United States of America or they reject you. And they say, sorry, for whatever reason, you, you can't come. You have to go back. And the Bible teaches us that this life is just a plane ride. And one day when we die, we're going to stand at, you could kind of think of it like customs in the kingdom of God. And that every single one of us is going to hear Jesus say to us, either, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome to your true home. Or we'll hear Jesus say to us, go away, I never knew you. This is not your true home. And so this man knows, and I think we, we would do well to remember too, that there is no more important question that you and I could ask on a regular basis than how do we know that when we get to customs, we will be allowed into the kingdom of God. What a shame it would be to fly first class, watching all your favorite movies, eating steak and, and you know, drinking wine and having a great time on the plane, only to be turned away at customs, right? So this man says, what should I do to have eternal life? But look at what else he says. He says, what good deed must I do? See, this man has an attitude that's very common, especially, I think it's common around here, but especially in Buddhist and Hindu cultures, this idea of karma, this idea that the way you get into the kingdom of God is by performing some really impressive act of charity or piety or, or something like that. He's asking, what good deed do I need to do to have whatever it is in my spiritual bank account so that I'm going to be allowed in. And look at what Jesus says to him in verse, 16, in verse 17. And, and Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, 
You can read, if you would enter the kingdom of God, keep the commandments. So what Jesus is saying to him is that the way is that only God is good and that the way sinful people like us can pass through customs, can enter God's kingdom, is not by doing a good deed, but by being devoted to a good God. It's not enough to say, well, I did this one thing, or I, you know, sacrificed this, or, or, or whatever it is, that, like Jesus says in Matthew 7, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, not everybody who goes to church, not everybody who reads their Bible, not everybody who takes communion will enter God's kingdom, but only those who do the will, are devoted to doing the will of my Father in heaven. Now, Jesus, so this man asks, he says, well, which ones? And Jesus said to him in verse 18, he says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What then do I still lack? Now, it's interesting, Jesus doesn't rebuke him for this the way he does some other people. He doesn't say, no, I know about all the skeletons in your closet, or, you know, you hypocrite, you're actually a terrible person, or whatever. Um, Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that. Now, I think as we read this, we kind of think, I think this guy needs to go back and listen to the podcast of Jesus' message on the Sermon on the Mount. If he thinks he's really kept all those commandments perfectly, I don't know if he's really thinking about it the right way. But, but nonetheless, Jesus, he, he, he continues on. He doesn't rebuke him for that. So we can probably assume this is not a guy who's made all his money by taking advantage of people or being corrupt and evil. This is a pretty upstanding, good, moral, decent person. But look at what Jesus says to him next. In verse 21, Jesus says, if you would be perfect... You remember Jesus said back in Matthew chapter five, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Jesus says, if you would be perfect, sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away very sorrowful for he had great possessions. So what we see here is this man, he was interested in doing some good deeds, but he wasn't fully devoted to a good God. He's, we're seeing in his life play out exactly what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said that you cannot serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other or, or, or hate the one and love the other, right? You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus says. Well, here's the proof that what Jesus is saying is true because when this man is caught at a crossroads between doing the will of God and his money, he chooses to be devoted to his money. Well, look at how Jesus, look at the commentary that Jesus says um, after this interaction. See, the disciples, they see this looking at verse 23, and the disciples are surprised. And the reason they're surprised is this, is that unlike the eat the rich crowd uh, today, 
they had a very different view of riches and rich people uh, back then in the first century Judaism. See, they would believe that riches was not a sign that you were evil, but a sign that you were good. That riches was not a sign that you were corrupt and took advantage of people, but rather being rich was a sign that God must be pleased with you, more pleased with you than he was other people. After all, if not, why would he give you so much money? And so the disciples, they just watched Jesus turn away or watch this one man walk away that they thought would probably be a prime candidate for their movement, and they're surprised. And look what they say. Jesus' disciples came to him, uh, and Jesus said to his disciples, he turns and says to these disciples in verse 23, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't stop there. He continues, verse 24, again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of ink that's been spilled um, on trying to uh, find ways to interpret uh, this verse, verse 24, the idea of the camel and the needle as being something other than what it actually says. I mean, a a camel back in that kind of Middle Eastern uh, culture, a camel is like their version of an elephant. It was the biggest animal that they had ever seen. And the needle is exactly what you think of. It's a, it's a needle, and it has a tiny little hole that's about that big. And the idea of a, of a camel going through the eye of a needle, um, it's not just silly, it's not just hard, it's impossible, right? And we know that Jesus is saying that it's impossible because look how the disciples respond. In verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. There's this good man. He, he must be good. That's, why else would he have so, so many riches? Think of all the ways he could help us. They were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, because clearly he can't, if camels going through the eyes of needles is impossible, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked, not the rich man who walked away, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So remember what I said is the the one point for today. Um, This is the point of the whole message. You can go ahead and put that slide up. That how should we view the rich? Jesus teaches us that Being rich is not a sign that God is pleased with you, and it's also not a sign that you're corrupt and evil and stuff like that. Jesus takes the first century idea of being rich and the 21st century idea of being rich, and he says neither one of those line up with the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching us that being rich is an obstacle to entering the kingdom of God. It's harder for a camel, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, the question is, why is that? If it's not because rich people are all evil and terrible and corrupt and whatever types of people, why is it harder? Why is it impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? Um, 
I, I, those of you that read your Bibles on a regular basis, and I hope that that's, I hope that's all of you, um, but as you're, as you're reading your Bible, a good thing to do if you're reading a passage and it's confusing and you're not sure what something means, a really good thing to do is not to just kind of start thinking of your own interpretations or explanations, but to look at the passages before and after the passage that you're reading and allow Jesus to interpret Jesus, allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And I think the answer to that question, why is it that it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, I think the answer is found in chapter 18. See, back in chapter 18, and you, you can look back there with me if you'd like, in, in Matthew 18, verse 1, Jesus' disciples, they came to him saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest of the ki- in the kingdom of God? And how'd Jesus respond? 18.2, and calling to him a child, he put him, as the child, in the midst of them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless he's talking to these grown men who are vying for position and status, and he says, unless you turn, don't even think about position in the kingdom of heaven, unless you turn and become like children, then you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, go ahead and put this next picture up there. Um, so this cute little guy, uh, this is me. Uh, I was talking to Fong. He said he could, he could see uh, some of Ruby and Rose and Valerie in, in there. I don't know. Um, but this is a picture of me when I was about three years old. This word that Jesus uses uh, for child, is pro- it refers to a young child, somebody who's probably seven years old or, or younger. This is me when I was probably about, about three years old. When you look at this picture, um, other than giggle because, you know, whatever, um, <laughs> uh, what, what, do you, what do you see when you see a child? What comes to your mind when you see a picture of a child? How would you describe a child compared to an adult? Innocent. Maybe, um, maybe we would say innocent. Maybe you would say good. Maybe you would say cute. Maybe we'd say we just want to pinch his cheeks or something like that. Well, Jesus, the word Jesus uses the word Jesus would use to describe a child is humble. It's humble. In verse 4, Jesus continues on this conversation with the disciples. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, a, a child has no status they have no power. If a child wants something, they can't take money out of their banking account and go to the store and buy it. <laughs> they have to rely on the adults around them to take care of them. They don't have a job title. They don't have a business card. They don't have a blue check mark on Twitter or whatever the status symbols are today. They don't have a lot of followers on something. Right? A child has no status and no power, and so they have to humble themselves to rely and depend completely on 
their parents or on the other adults in their life. And Jesus is saying, you have to humble yourself, give up your status, give up your sense of self-importance, give up this sense that you can take care of yourself and that you can get whatever you want out of life and that you're big and strong. You have to humble yourself and turn away from that and instead completely depend on Jesus the way when little Ryan was three years old, I had to completely depend on my parents so I could survive if you want to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying in Matthew 19 that it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because a rich person is the opposite of a child. A rich person has status. A rich person is powerful. A rich person, they don't have to rely on somebody else. They can get what they want. If they need something, they can buy it. It's hard to have childlike trust in God as you drive your Tesla on the way to your vacation home. In fact, apart from God, Jesus would say it's impossible. It's hard to remember that this world is not your home and you are a child of God waiting to enter your true home one day when Jesus comes back. When you're busy picking out bathroom tiles for your dream home. Jesus says, it's more difficult for a camel, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So the problem with this, whenever we talk about money, what immediately happens, I know I do this, I'm guessing you're doing this too, we immediately start thinking, well, man, I hope those rich people are listening to this. Man, I mean, yeah, let's, those rich people, they sure need to hear this today. I mean, I don't know why I'm here, but they, they really need to hear this. You know, when, uh, when Lindsay and I were coming back from China to America uh, in 2020, when we moved back here permanently, the thing that we noticed most and this area has changed a lot over the 13 years we were gone. The thing we notice most, I would say, is how wealthy we are. That even somebody who, kind of an average household in this area in particular, has luxuries and has resources that almost nobody else in the world has. I was um, looking up some numbers this past, uh, this past week and you know the annual house, the average annual household income in the world is $12,000. Average annual household income for the world, $12,000. In the United States, the average annual household income, $71,000. In the triangle, Average annual household income, $80,000. In Cary, North Carolina, the average annual household income, $114,000. Do 
There's an author that I really appreciate named Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, that says, by global standards, even the poorest Americans are easily in the upper 20% of the world's wealthy. By historical standards, anyone with a house, indoor plumbing, and enough to eat is certainly rich. Is it possible that you and I are camels? Is it possible when Jesus was talking about the rich, he wasn't just talking about Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, but he's talking about me and Lindsay and and maybe talking about you as well. And Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard to remember that your only claim to fame in this life is that you are a beloved child of God. When there are people whose job it is to do whatever you say in your company. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what that means is that for, for you and for me, It's possible that the greatest threat that we face spiritually today might be that we have so much money. So what should we do about it? Jesus says it's impossible with God. It's impossible with with man, it's impossible. Well, then who can be saved? Who can enter the kingdom of God? Who's gonna make it through this customs check? And Jesus says, Yeah, you're right. Camels, eyes of needles, impossible. With you, but with God, all things are possible. What should we do? Let me give you let me give you two things for application. Number one, if you are not rich, be grateful. If you are not rich, be grateful. I wonder if there's anybody here, I wonder if you're here this morning, and yeah, you're, you're getting by. You know, you, your needs are met, but you're not nearly as successful as you thought that you would be 10 years ago. I wonder if there's people in this room who the house you're living in is a lot smaller than the house that you would like to live in. I wonder if you've seen people that you went to school with, maybe even people in this church, that you see the way they live and what they can afford, and you're like, ah, man, I wish I could be that way. Is it possible that God not allowing you to be rich is actually a blessing to you? Like Dima said last week, we can learn a lot from people who are poor because when we're poor, we have more opportunities to trust God and exercise our faith for his provision on a daily basis. Is it possible that for us as a church, I wonder about some, this sometimes, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard as a church to learn to trust in God, that only his spirit is what's gonna make a difference in this community. 
it's hard to do that as a church when you have a state-of-the-art building and a thousand people. Part of me wonders if one of the reasons that God's allowed us to have such a long stretch of being in an elementary school is because he's teaching us as a church to humble ourselves like children and depend fully on, on God. So first of all, if you're not rich, be grateful. Second of all, if you are rich, be careful. Be careful. Mary, for the rich young man that we just read about in the story, his money came between him and Jesus. You can't serve two masters. You're going to love the one and hate the other or love the one and hate the other. And he was devoted not to a good God, but to his, his great wealth. And yeah, he wanted to do some good deeds to try to impress this good God, but ultimately, he was going to follow the money, at least when those two things came into conflict. Is it possible for, for camels like me and maybe camels like you, is it possible that that same thing is happening in your life? that money is coming between you and Jesus. That you're serving money instead of serving God. Let me ask you a couple questions to kind of help you process that. When you encounter uncertainty in your life, financial uncertainty, job uncertainty, career uncertainty, whatever, do you find more comfort with the fact that you have a steady income and an emergency fund in the bank or the fact that God promises that he will always take care of you? Are there ways that God might be calling you to serve and live on mission for him but you're not doing it or you're not really jumping in and doing it fully because of the financial risk. Or because living that way would not allow you to make as much money or be as successful in your career as you would like to be. If you're rich, be careful. Well, for those of us that are rich, what should, what should we do practically? You know, Jesus gives this man an advice, some advice and command that I think is really good for us to take to heart today. He tells him, sell your possessions, give it to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Um, back in 2015, Lindsay and I were, uh, we were in a place where we were very anxious about money, and for whatever reason, not for whatever reason, it, it was God. God laid it on our hearts to give away what to us felt like an extravagantly large amount of money. And again, that's all relative. For us, it felt like, whoa, how are we gonna, how are we gonna afford to give away this much money? And there's this organization named Rice Bowls that we gave this large amount of money to. Um, again, for us, it felt large. Uh, and this organization, what they did is they provide food for uh, orphans in Christian orphanages all around the world. And so we gave 
what to us felt like an extravagant amount of money to this organization. And, and you know what happened? I almost immediately started to think, but wait a second, who's going to take care of me? Well, what, what about me? I mean, am I, am I going to be okay? Well, what if this happens? What if that happens? And I had no other choice but to rely on God. In other words, I started to become more childlike. So think about that. By giving away your money sacrificially, even selling something so you can invest more heavily in serving the needy, we put ourselves in a position where we have to trust in God. And people ask, well, well how much should I give? And I think Jesus would tell us, it's not about how much you give. Because again, this isn't about you can be a part of the bronze club or the platinum club or the whatever club. This isn't about doing good deeds to try to impress God. It's not about doing good deeds. It's about being devoted to a good God. And by taking away some of the obstacles that are in our life to us entering the kingdom of God, it puts us in a position where we have no other choice but to trust in God the same way that cute little three-year-old Ryan used to trust in his parents. Um, I want everybody to do this with me real quick. I want you to take out your phone. Um, not something you often hear a pastor say. Take out your phone. Um, so... Uh, if you look at my phone right here, I have set my wallpaper and my lock screen uh, to be a picture, the picture that you're seeing on the screen right now. And the reason I did that is to have a constant reminder that God is calling me to humble myself like a child. And to just like I look at this picture and I say, wow, that kid could not do anything on his own. It's a reminder for me to continue in spite of the fact that I'm a camel, just like you're probably a camel, to humble myself and to trust completely, not in what I can do for myself, but in God's provision and God's protection. So I encourage you, maybe you want this week to find a picture of yourself as a child and set it, try to find a picture that's cute as this picture right here. <laughs> maybe we can start sharing pictures and we can compare with the whole thing, I guess who this is and whatever. Um, but what if you took a picture of yourself as a child and set it as the wallpaper and the lock screen on your phone so every time you look at it in moments of stress or moments of, wow, look how much I have, you're reminded to turn and become like a child, humble and completely trusting in God. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I pray for us. Um, you say it's impossible with us, but all things are possible with you. And so we ask that you would work in our hearts, do what only you can do. I pray that you would just lead us to give sacrificially, uh, to give our money, to have treasure in heaven. I pray you'd use us powerfully to help the poor and the needy. And help us as a church, God, to not rely on ourselves, but to be totally reliant, totally dependent with childlike trust in you. I pray this in Jesus' name.